This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Friday. Daphna, last day. You're excited that we were able to, you were using the quote-unquote crush it. You said we were crushing it. We were crushing it. I just wanted to make sure we got through everything, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Today, we are talking about cerebral palsy. So, um, is it okay if I go through cerebral palsy? We didn't really agree on that, but sure. Okay. <clears throat> so, cerebral palsy. Uh, the definition of it is, is that it's a disorder in the development of movement and posture resulting in motor limitation secondary to a non-progressive brain injury to the developing brain. I think the critical term here is non-progressive. So the epidemiology is that it involves two to three uh, live births uh, out of 1,000. There's obviously a greater incidence with decreased gestational age. So you're more likely to see cerebral palsy in babies as they are of lower gestation. That should not really be surprising. Now, what are some of the reported estimates? They have uh, data from the Epipage 2 study here from 2017. And in terms of term infants, uh, it's about one per 1,000 live births. 32 to 36 weekers, 10, to, 10 per 1,000 live births. Less than 28 weeks, 40 to 100 babies per 1,000 life birth. So the risks, obviously, to develop CP involve extreme prematurity. And that uh, we'll, we'll go over the types of, of cerebral palsy, but the most common type is spastic, spastic diplegia, um, and including associated comorbidities such as um, illness severity and periventricular leukomalacia. In utero and postnatal infections are also risk factor. Bilirubin encephalopathy increased the risk of developing a tetoid CP. Is that how I pronounce it? A tetoid? Yeah, cool. Um, any form of brain injury like stroke, trauma, HIE is also a strong risk factor for CP. Any form of placental abnormalities. Um, and then something to obviously be concerned about, which is that a high percentage of infants who develop CP do not have any of the above risk factors and really are suffering from CP and have an undetermined etiology. Interestingly enough, the ABGAR score has been shown to be a poor indicator of an infant's risk of brain damage. So do not ever, right? I think this is such, I mean, I think I've had a question and I may have gotten this one wrong, where they say, hey, the baby's ABGAR at 10 minutes is two. Um, mm-hmm. is it is it at a high risk of developing CP? And you're like, of course, most likely something is wrong and you start <laughs> connecting all these dots. But technically, uh, you cannot use the APGAR to make that kind of prediction. I don't know if this, this is probably in the review. I've probably had a review questions like that, but it's such a tricky one. The majority of full-term infants who develop CP have normal APGAR scores mm-hmm. in neonates with APGAR scores of zero to three at five, 10, and 20 minutes of age. The risk of developing CP is... 1%, 9%, and 50% respectively. So if your APGAR score is 0, 1, 2, or 3 at 20 minutes of age, you're still um, like barely, like 57% chance of developing CP, which you would expect this to be much higher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so 
that was your uh, public service announcement. Do not fall prey to that question because I did. Um, in terms of clinical, so CP is usually recognized at the age of six to 18 months corrected age. Um, obviously, as the baby is expected to do more things from a motor standpoint, it actually becomes makes sense that it would be easier to detect. And there's a classification for CP that involves the distribution of uh, the paralysis, the motor activity, and the function. So in terms of the classification by distribution, which involves extremity, so either it's the unilateral, which would be hemiplegia, or bilateral, meaning it involves both sides, right and left, and that could be diplegia or quadra, quadriplegia. So what does that mean? Diplegia means that um, diplegia, uh, actually, we're going to get into it. So hemiplegia involves only one side, fine. Diplegia involves the legs only, or the legs are more affected than the arm. And quadriplegia involves all four limbs. In terms of classification by motor type uh, and by neurologic dysfunction, we have, dis we have spastic CP, we have dyskinetic CP, ataxic and mixed CP. So spastic CP is, uh, is, is the most common form, um, and it's about 85 to 90% of uh, types of CP, um, and one-third of cases are unilateral, two-thirds are bilateral. What you see there is you see increased tone, increased deep tendon reflex, gross motor is affected, and fine motor is usually not affected. Interestingly enough, you could be tempted to think that because they have so many motor delays, cognitive function might be affected, but cognitive function is usually not affected. So that is spastic CP. In terms of dis dyskinetic CP, which is about 7% of cases, also known as a tetoid CP. Um, well, if you break down, I think Dr. Brodsky and Martin do a very good job here of breaking down dyskinetic. So kinesia means activity. Hypokinesia means reduced activity. Hyperkinesia means increased activity. And so dyskinesia means abnormal activity. And so what they have is they have these repetitive, uncontrolled, involuntary movements. Um, and they have mixed tone within the same muscle. It can be dystonic, which means you have reduced activity with increased tone manifesting as stiff movements. You could have choreoatetoic, which means increased activity and reduced tone manifesting as an uncoordinated, writhing, jerky movements. Both gross and fine motor are affected, unlike spastic, where only gross motor is affected. They can have hearing deficits and speech abnormalities. Finally, um, the two least common involve ataxic CP. It's about 4% of cases. You have decreased tone, poor coordination, decreased reflexes, and severe cognitive delay. So um, we're entering now. We'll, we'll review that. And finally, we have mixed CP, which is mixed tone and movement abnormalities in various muscles. So if we're asking about CP and the involvement of cognition, spastic CP, dyskinetic CP, no involvement of cognition. The taxic CP, which is the least common, known as the atonic CP, is the one where you can see severe cognitive delay. The classification by function, um, it's assessed using the Palisano Gross Motor Functional Classification System, the, GMF, the GMFCS, and there are five levels corresponding to motor ability in children 6 to 12 years of age from level 1 with minor limitation to level 5 severe limitations.
In terms of management, unfortunately, there are no cure. And really, the efforts of clinicians should be involving optimization of function and symptom management. Physical therapy, occupational therapy, provide assistive device, severe limiting hypertonia and contracture may require orthopedic surgery, rhizotomy, bracing, botulism, toxin injections. And again, that's beyond the, sc- that's beyond the scope of our, of our exam. The prognosis is that life expectancy is associated with the degree and number of comorbidities, which is not really surprising. I think the types are probably more likely to be uh, tested. And that is the review of CP. Phew. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk about a little bit about learning disabilities and developmental outcomes to finish us up for neurology. So what is a learning disability? It is a deficit in the psychological process with an imperfect ability. I like that, an imperfect ability. Who's Mm -hmm. perfect anyways? But an imperfect ability to listen, speak, read, write, spell, or do math. There's a significant discrepancy between learning potential and actual academic achievement. You must exclude um, overall mental deficiency deafness, or lack of opportunity. Uh, There are two peaks for learning disabilities. The first is seen in early elementary where um, children may struggle with reading, spelling, or math. And then in late elementary where they may struggle with concepts um, and they are different. Clinically, they must be at least one standard deviation or a 15-point difference between the scores on a standardized intelligence test Um, and a standardized achievement test. So that means that their standardized achievement tests are lower than their standardized intelligence tests, scores. So that is to say that kids with learning disabilities may have normal IQs. They may have above average IQs, but that their standardized achievements are not meeting the level of their expected IQ. Now, um, that's a short little segment, and so is developmental outcomes by gestational age, since this is obviously an ever-moving target. Um, But in general, long-term impairments are inversely related to birth gestational age. And as we know, predicting outcomes is difficult. Um, The tools to assess outcomes evolve over time. Clinical management evolves over time, altering the infant's exposure to risks associated with impaired developmental outcomes, such that as our management of, for example, the extremely preterm infant is improving, um, so are their uh, long-term developmental outcomes. Many intangibles are important. These are hard to study. They're hard to measure. They're hard to define. Things like family environment. Um, while others continue to be discovered, things that um, we know affect development, but we're not exactly sure how. They have here listed the microbiome. The brain long axis, the gut yes. long, the great the so gut many brain things. axis. So many axes. <laughs> That's axes. Right. Inflammation as a, as yeah. a buzzword. So this is um, interesting. The Bailey exam at two years is not predictive of the outcomes in later childhood, but we did just review a paper that showed mm-hmm. that the Bailey was predictive of long-term outcomes at six to seven years. But I think the point is what we ask kids to do on the Bailey exam is not the same as um, what they have to perform at, in school and further. Well, and, and even if we did review that uh, the Bailey had some 
predictive abilities. It's not, at least it's not perfect. No, of course. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. yeah. I don't think they'll test about that because we're still studying it. So anyway. Is, is the bill perfect? True or false? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the answer should be false. All right. Um, Self-reported quality of life is very different to the quality of life assessed by parents and especially as assessed by medical caregivers like physicians. Man, this is like all the Journal Club uh, 152. That's you know? right. We, that's right. We just... We just reviewed. <laughs> um, anticipatory guidance should really draw on our existing knowledge in population cohorts, but also include a discussion of, again, the baby's individual characteristics, the potential intangibles, uncertainties, and quality of life from different perspectives. Uh, the authors, Sobratsky and Martin, refer the readers to Clinics in Perinatology, Volume 45, Issue 3, Long-Term Neurodevelopmental Outcomes of the NICU Graduate. So I think these will be hard to test um, because they are uh, changing. But I do have a question for you today. Let's do it. And if you're paying attention, you're going to get it. Neurology question 43. Children if I born wasn't with... paying attention, you see if how she treats me. <laughs> There's no way I should know this on my own. Only if I were to be paying attention. You might but... know this given your, your um, clinical interests. But children born with extremely low birth weight are at increased risk for learning disabilities, particularly nonverbal and math-related disabilities. Which of the following statements about learning disabilities is true? A, an individual with a diagnosed learning disability by definition also has subnormal intelligence. B, learning disabilities are diagnosed by scoring greater than or equal to one standard deviation below the mean on standardized achievement tests. C, poor academic achievement is always the result of learning disabilities. D, the most common type of learning disability in the United States is in math. Or E, there are effective school-based interventions for nonverbal learning disabilities. You're looking for the true statement. These, are, these were long statements on a Friday. I'm sorry. Hmm. That's okay. I feel like, uh, is, she, is your dog trying to help me out? Yeah, she wants to give you the right answer. The last one sounded pretty true, I have to say. The last you... answer choice? Yeah, what was that again? Not the one about the U.S. being uh, being uh, doing poorly you in, in math. You think the most common type of learning disability in the United States is in math? No, that's not it. That's not the one I'm talking about. Oh. Even though... You yeah. think there are effective school-based interventions for nonverbal learning disabilities... Huh. I don't know. I'm going to go with that. Sure. With that one? Gonna, no, with that that's one. not the correct answer. <laughs> God. You were not paying attention. I was not. <laughs> to review, uh, the correct answer is B, learning disabilities are diagnosed by scoring greater than or equal to one standard deviation below the mean on standardized achievement tests. You see, even when you give me the right answer again, I cannot process it, it all the way through the end of the sentence. It still didn't seem right. <laughs> no, no, it, but, it's not that. Uh, it's just that you have to have basically, you have to be 50, uh, one devi standard deviation above the mean. Is that what the... Below the mean. <laughs> and you still have normal intelligence. That That is potentially correct, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. that makes sense. That's, that, that's I'll, accurate. They, they, I'll, give yeah. you, I'll give you some more details. Learning disabilities can be defined in two ways. 
The first, scoring greater than or equal to one standard deviation, so more than one one or more standard deviations below the mean on your standardized achievement test. Or, this is what you were getting at, number two, having one standard deviation or greater discrepancy between your IQ and achievement as measured by psychometric testings. I think that's where you got Mm. hung up. But as we said, not all individuals with learning disabilities have low IQs. Though subnormal intelligence is associated with learning problems and poor educational attainment. Most children in the general population in the United States with diagnosed learning disabilities have verbal, not math-related disabilities. However, the low birth weight population has a disproportionate risk of nonverbal and math-related disabilities. And this is especially unfortunate for our preemies because at this time there are few effective interventions offered in schools. Okay. All right, we did it. Neurology down. What are we? Uh, nutrition next. Nutrition next. I've been avoiding it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are. Let me see. While we're recording this, I guess uh, we will see each other for Journal Club on Sunday. That's right. Talk to you later, Daphna. Thank you. Bye, buddy. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to NICUpodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.